Well, in the wake of Queen Elizabeth's passing, you know, antidotes from her life are, are coming back up to the surface. And, and one that I heard recently, I may have heard of it first here, but I went and looked it up, is that Queen Elizabeth, when she would go on holiday vacation to her, one of her vacation homes, uh, her chief of security would often go on walks with her, Richard Griffin. And he tells a story that they're walking around one day uh, on a hike, I'm not sure what the terrain was like, and they see another couple walking in the opposite direction. This couple stops to say hello, and it becomes quickly apparent that this American couple has no idea who they are interacting with. But they do know, they've heard that they are near the Queen's vacation home, and so they ask, have you ever met the Queen? And without skipping a beat, she says, oh no, but Richard here has on several occasions. And they're like, really? What is she like? Oh, she can be a bit cantankerous, but she's got a nice sense of humor. And they are enamored with this person who has met the queen. And they shove a camera in the queen's hands and says, will you take a picture with us and this person who has met the queen? Um, He has the presence of mind to say, well, come on, get one with her as well. And as they walked off, this American couple, the queen said, I sure would love to be a fly on the wall when they realize who is in that picture with them. (laughs) In our passage this morning, we have an anointed one, David, and no one seems to recognize him for who he really is. Uh, We have been studying the life of David, looked at various snapshots from his life, and we we meet him as a young shepherd boy who is anointed in secret because God has taken the kingdom from his predecessor Saul, though Saul has decided to remain in office, and we've seen David lean into his anointing by slaying a giant in faith against all odds. We've seen Saul, who refuses to let go of his kingship, hunt and try to find David. He's jealous. He wants to have him killed. And here we are in this passage. David is on the run. Saul does not recognize him or treat him as he really is. And while the Gentiles recognize David as the king, they don't treat him as he ought to be treated. And David himself does not act as one should as a king. And in the midst of all of this, what we find is that God is still gracious to David and to his people. So let's read this passage and we will pray. From 1 Samuel 21. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Didn't they sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. 
and everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul, and gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have given us a place to gather together to worship in the name of your son, Jesus. And we ask that by your spirit, you would dig out for us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see him, that you would meet us in our sin, that you would comfort us by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems like David can do it all, doesn't it? We see in this passage that he's quite the actor. Um, We already know that he is also a capable musician. If Goliath could speak, he would say, David is also quite the fighter. He can act, he can sing, he can fight. This is Israel's Will Smith. (laughs) The fresh prince of Israel. Now, the first thing we read about David is that he fled from Saul to Gath. Now, what do we know about Gath? A few chapters ago, we read... There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. So here we are. David has fled for his life. He has left Israel because Saul is hotly pursuing him. And where does he go but to the hometown of the highest sort of known kill of his life? It makes no sense whatsoever. I've thought about this. I mean, maybe he thinks, you know, that was years ago. I was a boy. I mean, I've commanded armies now, I've gotten stronger, I've bulked up, I have a beard now. Maybe I can go incognito. But beard or no, he is recognized. How did David come to stand before the king of Gath? Did he flee Saul and then go straight into his courts? I don't think so. You know, the the men of our church have been going through the Psalms together. Uh, There's several weeks of just sort of picking a Psalm and working through that together. And inevitably, right on cue, this question tends to come up. What's the context of this Psalm? We looked at Psalm 40 this past week. When in David's life was Psalm 40 written? And surely there's speculation out there, but we don't know from the text itself. We simply don't know which can be frustrating. But sometimes we know the context. And we know the context of Psalm 56 fits with this passage. The heading says, To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So how did David come to stand before the king of Gath? The Philistines seized him. Presumably when he was trying to walk around incognito on the outskirts of Gath, but they grab him and they recognize him. And now he stands before the king and not anonymously at all. Isn't this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? After all, some of them were probably there when their champion Goliath fell at the hand of David. Like being there in a national championship when you lose and the confetti comes down for the other team. 
They've heard these songs. They know what people say about David and about Saul. And perhaps that's why they call David king. He's not the king. Saul is the king. But maybe in spite of themselves, they have seen the divine momentum behind David. He is headed for the throne. But if David ever liked this song, he certainly hates it now. And the way that Jesus was crucified under a sign that said king of the Jews, David fears that his life may end for the same title. And we know he's afraid. The text tells us. And David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. I think these words are important that we read that David was very much afraid of the king of Gath. Because if you remember when he faced off Goliath, it was very different. Goliath stood facing the Israel forces and he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. But not, not David. Do you remember what he says? Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight him. Everyone is afraid but David. He's confident, but not in himself. Because he says to Goliath, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David doesn't trust in swords. David doesn't trust in military might. He trusts in the God who has called and anointed him to lead the armies of his people to be their protector. But now, in front of Achish, another leader of Gath, he is afraid. He is in a very different state of mind, and I would argue a different state of heart. If you back up a few verses just before this passage, you see just how different. Right before this passage, same chapter, David's on the run, he goes into the house of God and there is a priest and he lies to him twice. Once to get food, and God graciously gives him food, and wants to get a weapon. Haven't you a sword here or a spear? David says, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here. Take it, if you will. And David responds, there is none like it. Give it to me. The same one who told Goliath that he was foolish to trust in his sword, now trusts in the very same sword. He's lied to a priest twice to get the sword. And in a few chapters, this priest will be murdered because of it. David has forgotten his confidence in the Lord, and now he seems to be trusting in lies and in weapons, and at every step, he seems to be digging for himself a deeper and deeper hole. It makes me wonder, do you long for a time, maybe in your own past, where trusting God felt more natural? 
that maybe you felt closer to God, you trusted him in the midst of difficult situations, but now life has gotten more complicated. And that sort of trust in your own life feels more distant. In Psalm 86, David will say of God, there is none like you. But in 1 Samuel 21, he says of a sword, there is none like it. Give it to me. This story not only helps us to see the errant path that David is on, I think it also helps us to see how he was recognized. He carries Goliath's sword into Goliath's hometown. There's nothing anonymous about this. Why would he do this? I have no idea. Except I suspect that he knows that the sword that he put his trust in is going to be of no help to him now. But David's clown show isn't over. He's still afraid, still in deep, deep trouble. Will these men now use Goliath's sword to cut off my head just as I cut off Goliath's? Look, king, we've got the guy who killed Goliath. And what does David do? We read that he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. That's a great word, spittle. If you've seen the movie Zoolander, you might recognize the first quote in your bulletin from Jacobin Mugatu. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Somebody said to me right before the service, reading that in the bulletin made me feel like I was taking crazy pills. And I picked it simply because I thought it was funny. David acts like he's insane. Here's a quote about crazy pills. But the more and more I studied this passage, I felt like I was taking crazy pills. There's so many takes on what is happening here. It's dizzying. Some commentators say of this crazy act, the king is not afraid to act in a way that is beneath him, much like our Lord and Savior emptied himself of all glory going to the cross. And others say, well, look at the military genius of David, and all's fair in love and war, pay no attention to his deception. And so perhaps the passage is not as clear-cut as other passages are, but I do think when you factor in the trajectory of David's life and the trajectory of David's actions, we see an unsettling pattern. You know the old saying, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And David sure seems to think that the only tool he has is deception. In chapter 20, when he realizes just how angry Saul is with him, he tells Jonathan, tell your dad I went to sacrifice to the Lord, and that's where I am. The next chapter, he goes into the house of God and he lies to a priest twice. And now he is pretending to be insane. There are two responses to someone like me calling David out for relying on his deceptive flesh. And the first is to say, you know, if David's really in sin here, why does God continue to bless him? If David's really doing something wrong, then why when he lies to get food does God give him food? 
And why, when he lies to get a weapon, does he get a weapon? And why, when he lies about his sanity, does he get blessed by being let go? Because God is gracious. And God does not give sinners what they deserve. In fact, we pray for daily bread, and we get daily bread. God gives sinners good things that they don't deserve. And I think that this impulse in us that wants to say, is he really wrong? Because God wouldn't bless him if he was. This impulse really undervalues and doesn't quite understand just how big grace is. But the second impulse is to say, well, but wasn't David clever? I mean, Saul is hunting him down. What's he supposed to do? He's clever. What's so wrong with doing what David did? If the first impulse doesn't really understand God's grace, I think the second impulse doesn't really understand sin. Because God is holy, perfectly holy. And in him there's no shadow of sin whatsoever. He calls his people to be holy as he is holy. And even clever sins are sins. The truth is, I don't think that we often see our own lies for what they are. Relationally, sometimes you might find yourself at odds with somebody and you catch yourself being a little passive-aggressive with the person you're relating with, but it's veiled in ambiguity. And somebody might ask, are you okay? Are we okay? Have I done something wrong? What? No, no, no. We're, we're great. I'm great. We're right as rain. I have not found that this approach deepens trust or brings about healthy resolution. Or maybe you've gossiped about somebody and they've caught wind of it and, and they ask you, did you say this about me? You know what happened is I was misheard. Uh, There's more to it. What I meant was this. And instead of saying, yes, I said that, and it was wrong, and I'm sorry, we dig ourselves deeper. Lies always bring destruction. You know, children can tell when they've been sinned against, and when they have if they've actually come to you and, and, and sort of say, hey, what's, what's going on here in their own way, do we honor their bravery with an apology? Or do we hide behind a half-truth and authority? You see, our responses teach them how little or how much we value the truth. Will you allow yourself to be vulnerable? Relationally, or financially, or otherwise, when you think you can save yourself by deception. The good news is that the Bible shows us from cover to cover that God is gracious to sinners who do not deserve it. And he is not waiting for you to get your act together so that he can be gracious to you. But he does call a lie a sin. The truth is, David was clever here. He was resourceful, 
but I believe that he was drawing from the wrong well of resources. David's far more sinful than we like to admit, frankly, because we're far more sinful than we like to admit. And yet equally true is that God is more gracious than we can comprehend. And so the question is, is God's grace to you leading you to repentance? Paul says in Romans 2, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? True repentance can only come through an understanding of God's grace and mercy to you. Our shorter catechism defines repentance this way, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of their sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It is only the mercy and the grace of God that can lead us to repentance. And if you change your behavior without a true and powerful sense of God's mercy and grace, all you have is behavior modification, and that will get you squat. In a city like Greenville, there is a form of heavy-handed Christianity that is far more concerned with your obedience than it is with you understanding and knowing the mercy and the grace of Jesus that meets you precisely in your sin. Your hope is not built on your obedience. Your hope is built upon the grace of God in Christ that meets you in your disobedience. Now don't mishear me. Disobedience is still always sin. But if you would first repent of it, you have to see that God meets you first with his grace. This is why we don't simply tell our children, now this is wrong and this is right. Don't do the wrong thing and do the right thing. That's why we don't do that. We lead with, for you, little one, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he lived and showed his love. For you, he entered the darkness of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. For you, he uttered the cry, it is finished. For you, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and there he intercedes for you. Before we tell our children, repent, we tell them, you are washed. God is gracious to you. Let his kindness and mercy lead you to repentance. Unless you and I understand that Jesus meets us in our sin and gives us grace, we don't understand Christianity. We understand another religion. We won't repent. You see, David points to his greater son, sometimes by picturing him and sometimes by showing us how much he needs him. But David does belong to Jesus. And still he acts crazy, like a madman. He's drooling all over himself, scribbling gibberish on his jail cell. And Nachish says, behold, 
You see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Man, I mean, it's, it's comical. David escapes in comedic fashion. And we read that he escapes to the cave of Adullam, where he writes Psalm 56. We referenced that earlier. But he also writes Psalm 34 there. The heading for Psalm 34 reads like this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. There are a few lines from Psalm 34 that make me really wonder, is David repenting of his actions here? Is, he, is, is this psalm actually including repentance? Thanking God for his deliverance from this king. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Their faces will never be ashamed. Really, David? Because you have just covered your face in shame. You've drooled all over yourself and acted like a madman. This is not a face of radiance. This is a face of shame. It's what you use to get out of this sticky situation. David says, but I'm trusting in the Lord now, and I know that my face will never be ashamed. And you might think, "Uh, maybe. But he goes on. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I mean, that's a little on the nose. What man in there wants to save his life? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Is there a man who wants to live a long time? His face shall not be ashamed, and he shall not utter words of deceit with his mouth. And David has just done both of these things. David's life is just like every other redeemed sinner's life. It is an ongoing mixture of grace meeting us in our sin, leading us to repentance, and never fully or finally in this life being rid of our sin. David is a man after God's own heart, and he is profoundly sinful. So am I, and so are you, and so are our children, and only grace can lead to true repentance, grace that was purchased by Jesus by taking on the sins of the world upon himself on the cross that we might receive grace and mercy instead of judgment. In closing, I want to look just briefly at the immediate aftermath of this. When David is kicked out from the king's presence, he goes and he hides in the cave of Adullam. He writes Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. We read, When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Look who comes to this king. 
It is not those who are put together. It's those who are in distress. It is those who need help. It is those who cannot help themselves. It is those who are in debt, defined by past failings. Maybe they have squandered the resources they had, but they are in debt and they go out to Jesus, to David, without resources. Those who were discontent. Those who said that there's got to be something better, there's got to be something more. And why do these needy outcasts make their way out to David? Because, and maybe they don't really understand this fully, and maybe David doesn't understand this fully, but the kingdom of God has always been for those who are broken and sinful and needy and not put together. It has always been for those who know that they cannot go at life alone. And as sinful as David is, he is being entrusted with this kingdom in infancy that Jesus is putting together for those who need him. We see this in the Gospels when we read over and over again that the kingdom is for tax collectors and sinners and for the sick and the blind. In Luke, we read that the crowds follow Jesus. They make their way out to him and he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and he cured those who were in need of healing. And so the question is not do you need healing? But where do you need healing? And who are you trusting for your healing? Have we learned like David that simply running from our troubles is not the same thing as running to Jesus? In fact, when we merely run from troubles, we almost always run right into more troubles. Have we learned, like David, that God does not give us what we deserve, but he meets our sin with grace that he might lead us to repentance? Because Jesus bought that grace for us on the cross. David becomes commander of this ragtag outfit and turns them into an army that serves and coronates the true king, the rightful king. And while this kind of army has no place in God's kingdom anymore, God is still drawing to himself people who were not put together so that he might put them in a place of serving in this kingdom to bring this kind of grace and good news to those who were not put together. So the question is, Is grace freeing you to acknowledge just how deep your sin runs? Because in Christ, acknowledging your sin never leads to destruction. In Christ, acknowledging your sin always leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the ways that you have preserved it for us for millennia, and we ask that you would grow in us faith to believe it, to respond to it, to live by it, and we pray most of all that you would help us to see that Jesus is kind to people like us, that he redeems people like us, that he brings people like us to himself, and he gives us a calling to serve in his kingdom, and so we pray that you would show us our sin. And while that stings, 
and hurts, that more than that, you would show us that your grace meets us precisely where we feel most vulnerable. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.